Howdy. It's classified. Anyway, you breathe liquid so you can't get compressed. The pressure doesn't get you. You mean you got liquid in your lungs? It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the movies we love and some we don't. I'm your host, Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time professional jellyfish wrangler, Andrew Raphael. (laughs) (laughs) And for this week's episode, we're swapping the deep darkness, tension, and the alien beings that populate space with the deep darkness, tension, and alien beings that populate the ocean. That's right, hold steady as we're plunging deep into James Cameron's abyss. Uh, uh, That's actually the abyss. But do we find treasure worth bringing back to the surface, or should this remain buried with the Titanic? Find out after the trailer. In 1984, director James Cameron thrilled audiences with his vision of the future, The Terminator. In 1986, he created the science fiction masterpiece, Aliens. This summer, he will take you into a world no man has ever seen before. If you can't decide between watching a tense Cold War-era submarine thriller or a Spielbergian alien adventure, then why not watch James Cameron's The Abyss, the lesser version of both? (laughs) It's not really, but I thought I'd say that. It's a good joke. (laughs) Ed Harris and Mary Mastrantonio play Virgil and Lindsay, an estranged husband and wife caught in a plot involving wrecked submarines, nuclear weaponry, psychotic Navy SEALs, sentient water... Alien jellyfish, a thousand foot tidal waves, the destruction of mankind, and Michael Bean's moustache. Will they find love? Who cares? The jellyfish people will kill us all. <laughs> Marvel at the breathtaking special effects, hold your breath during the amazing underwater set pieces, and contact Peter while James Cameron drowns several rats. Okay. So, this is The Abyss. It's been actually nominated by one of our listeners, though it's been firmly on our list for some time to review. Yeah. But um, I think a shout out straight from the office to Darren Lundberg as well, who's been doing a lot of great promotion for us as well. Yeah. Uh, Again, a lot of people to listen to the podcast. So, this is our way of saying thanks. We are reviewing The Abyss today in his honour. So, Andy, tell me, is this your first time plunging into James Cameron's Abyss? Sort of. I had never seen the film in full until a few weeks ago when we uh, decided that we were going to do this. I was always going to watch it when a better version of the film came out, uh, i.e. quality-wise, and that's never come. So um, that's the main reason why I haven't watched this film, because this is a weird film that's been very poorly treated when it comes to home video. Yeah. It was actually the only major James Cameron film I'd, I'd never seen because of that. In preparation for this, I decided to watch both the theatrical cut and the special edition, but space it out. So I did actually watch the theatrical about three weeks ago and then watch the special edition yesterday. 
along with the documentary. So yeah, and I think prior to that, the only experience I'd had from it would be sections of documentaries. I'm pretty sure I saw a segment of them making The Abyss on television one time yeah. uh, when it talked about the special effects. I think mainly the model work, actually. So I had been aware of The Abyss for a long time, but never sat down to watch it because, again, mm-hmm. I was waiting for even just a better DVD, and it's just never come. Yeah. Which is uh, something we'll go on to a little bit later, I think. Oh, yeah. I think a great deal of this podcast today is going to be dedicated to discussing the lack of release for the, well, Blu-ray or 4K release, really. Yeah. I think when we go into the production of it, I think we may understand why that is the case. Yeah, actually, it's very strange. Watching this film, we recorded an episode of the show not too long ago, I think. The Soldier episode, wasn't it, actually, where we talked about James Cameron and about the lack of a release for True Lies and The Abyss. Yeah. And we had a lot of questions. And actually, watching the film again, I think I may have touched upon why this film hasn't been released again since. And some things that perhaps James Cameron is waiting to do and complete with this film to Mm. offer a more definitive version. And it's just that that's not coming together in quite the way he would want at this moment in time. Yeah, yeah. But we'll go into that in greater depth later. I will say that The Abyss is a film that I actually saw very early on. I remembered it being released in 1993 and I had the VHS copy of the special edition. So I'd seen it from quite early on. I think I must have been around about nine when I first saw The Abyss. And it was always a film that I enjoyed, but I don't know, I've always regarded it as a lesser James Cameron film, a second tier James Cameron film. Mm-hmm. Like even, you know, as a kid, the film that I always gravitated towards was obviously Terminator 2. Yeah, yeah. And this one is, it's a lot more tense and it's a lot more atmospheric. And in terms of the set pieces as well, they are flashy, but they're not exactly gung-ho, stunt-a-minute kind of things. No, no. And it's a much slower film that way, especially the special edition. And I had never really seen the theatrical cut. I actually watched some of the theatrical cut in the build-up to this show, so I have more of a frame of reference now to how the film actually plays out theatrically. But The Abyss, yeah, it's always been a film that stuck with me over the years, and I've just been waiting for that release. So, I guess really before we start talking about the film, it's time really for us to lay some context as to when the film was made and how it was made, and then we can really get into what we thought about it. So, Andy, I'm going to hand it over to you for this section of the podcast. You're going to tell us a little bit about the making of The Abyss. Okay. Well, this film is swimming in context. There's so much about this film. This is the first epic scale James Cameron production. I wouldn't count Aliens in that regard because it is, all intents and purposes, a a low-budget blockbuster. Aliens was made for $18 million, which was actually quite a low budget yeah. even for 1986. So this is when James Cameron, the auteur, appears. This is the first yeah. massive James Cameron film. That's it. And I would say as well with Aliens, the reason that that film looks like it does and feels as a much bigger film than its budget really alludes to is because James Cameron comes from a Roger Corman background. Yeah. And he knows kind of how to maximise very little budget to make it look so much more. Yeah. And when you look at Aliens, there's just so many levels of technical mastery at play in order to make that image look so much better than it is. Yeah, I would say it's a combination of James Cameron's know-how and the resourcefulness of the production designer, Peter Lamont, that made that film. Oh, of course. 
because he was able to retrofit so much to make it work and use tricks like using the mirrors in the, in oh, the of pod. Course, yeah. You know, yeah. I remember we were, we were talking to him about that on that Starburst day. And that's also when we found out that he'd done a little bit of prep on the Abyss. He'd actually gone out to uh, South Carolina to um, yeah. advise pre-production on, on this film before he... Uh, well, he probably went to Mexico to uh, supervise License to Kill after that. So um, that's the reason why he's not production designing um, The Abyss. But yeah, there's not loads on the um, inception of this film. It seems to be one of those films, very much like Avatar, where it, it had been in his mind for a long time. The crux of it seems to have stemmed from a, a high school lecture that he'd attended and it was a lecture about deep sea diving and the idea of liquid breathing, because I think that had been something that had uh, existed in an experimental form for quite a few uh, years and had been yeah. developed by certain different parties. That I think there's several different versions of the breathing liquid that had been developed over time. So I think originally the story was it was a short story about scientists involving deep sea diving and this breathing liquid, but over time. I think due to the failure of several films involving scientists, he decided to change the concepts to blue-collar workers because yeah. he thought that people would relate to those characters more. That is a great choice as well for this yeah. film because that sense of character as well, that blue-collar character, really makes this film for me. Yeah, so I'd imagine this has been swimming around in his mind, again, pun, yeah, uh, for a long time. <laughs> and he was probably just waiting for the right moment. I imagine for tech to catch up and just for yeah. having the budget to do it so off the back of the success of the terminator and then subsequently aliens which were both fairly low budget films that made quite a lot of money he teams up with fox to do the abyss and um they hand him a fairly large budget i'm not sure what the original budget was because i think that the final budget of 70 million i imagine that would have been the revised figure post-production because I, I'm thinking it may have been like a 50 million budget. Yeah. Something like that. And um, one of the first things that he mentioned to the studio was unlike a lot of underwater-based films where they would shoot dry for wet, yeah. he wanted to do almost everything when he could completely underwater. Yeah. I can think of one James Bond film that does utilise dry for wet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you talking about For Your Eyes Only? I uh, I watched it yesterday. Yes, for your yeah. eyes only. Yeah. That was for a, a technical reason. I thought she didn't she have a sinus infection. She had really bad. Something? Well, she just had really bad sinus problems, so she could not oh, do right, anything yeah. underwater. So yeah, they had to do drive for wet. I mean, obviously, I think one of the biggest underwater films is another James Bond film prior to that, it's which a, is Thunderball. Thunderball. Yeah. But I think the biggest difference with this film is that he wanted to do all this underwater, but in a controlled environment, and he wanted to replicate all the things you would have in a normal film shoot, but in this strange environment. So this is the first instance for James Cameron pushing technology to suit his needs to make a yeah. film. This is where it starts, because Aliens and The Terminator, although they utilise the tricks of the trade very well, they are all mm -hmm. based on established rules, whereas this yeah. is inventing stuff specifically for the film so the idea was that he would not be shooting in open water so that means that they'd have to find big enough tanks to do all the things that they required with the big sets and the subs they would have to develop 
audio systems, one for communication and two for recording the actor's dialogue when they're underwater. Specialist lighting, specialist helmets, specialist... Almost everything was built from the ground up for this film, so I imagine the pre-production would have been quite considerable. Yeah, what I'm actually quite astounded at with this film as well, because I did watch the Under Pressure Making of documentary, and yeah. you are talking about recording the dialogue underwater as well, but the, the clarity of the dialogue that they record underwater, when you hear the actual raw footage of them speaking underwater with the breaths included, it's practically inaudible. Yeah. And... They've done real wonders as well to capture the actual actors' dialogue. I mean, I imagine they've utilised ADR at times as well. Yeah, yeah. But they've mostly captured as well the actors speaking on set by eliminating the breathing and stuff like that from the audio tracks. And it sounds really great. Yeah. So they had to build all these things and they had to find somewhere that would be able to work as a functioning water tank or water tanks that would be big enough to fulfill all the ideas and plan, Mm -hmm. you know, all the designs that they had as well. So they found an abandoned nuclear power plant in Gaffney, South Carolina, and they were able to utilise a turbine pit, which became known as B-Tank, and that was used for all the scenes in the crippled submarine. And that was actually shot in first because A-Tank, which is a... um, a reactor containment vessel, which is 55 <laughs> foot high and 240 feet in diameter. It does sound like he filmed in Chernobyl or something, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it looks like that as well when you see Yeah, the it really does. And that could contain 75 million gallons of water. And it was then that he realised that he could make this film in the way that he wanted to. And because of the specs of the nuclear industry, it was able to withstand the pressure of holding that much water. And to be honest, what they do with that place as well from the documentary, it does look absolutely magnificent how they've managed to kit these tanks out to be these huge sets. Like you say, there's a whole submarine set down there as well. And it's fantastic to look at. It really is a sight once you get under that water. Yeah, and the story goes is that they were already behind even when they started because A-Tank wasn't finished. So they had to start filming in B-Tank. I think they had a week. Uh, They were meant to start shooting on the 8th of August, 1988. The tank wasn't ready and they needed to start the following week with B-Tank, but B-Tank wasn't meant to be ready until mid-September. So they had Mm. to finish all that work, which would have been six weeks of work in the space of a week. Oh, wow. So, yeah, they started off like that and it got worse, (laughs) as James Cameron describes. (laughs) So, and in order to get the A-Tank ready, they had to start filling the A-Tank whilst they were finishing the set for the Deep Core. And Deep Core had to be reinforced in order to withstand the water pressure. So it was pretty much built, I imagine. If they'd built that for real, it probably would have been like for like yeah. to have withstood all the water pressure. And you can see the time-lapse video of the water tank slowly filling up as they're struggling to finish this set <laughs> before it's consumed by water. And they had to build filtration plants to filter the water which is from a lake and heat it up and i know that failed halfway through the shoot so they ended up with like 50 percent operating level so it wasn't as warm Mm -hmm. as they wanted it to and it wasn't as clean as they wanted it to by the end of the shoot and they had special beads at the top oh yeah to stop the reflection that's right yeah and to prevent light as well from 
entering the <laughs> the environment. Yeah, and a huge black tarp so they could keep all the shooting conditions the same. Although, again, halfway through the shoot, the tarp broke. They had a lot of thunderstorms that time of year, so yeah. a lot of things went wrong. They had to keep evacuating because of thunderstorms. The tarp broke, so they had to switch to shooting at nights. Yeah, do you remember that scene in which James Cameron looks at the broken tarp and simply yeah. says, well, I guess we're shooting nighttime now. Yeah, to be honest, the list goes on and on and on. There's so many stories yeah. regarding this film. The stories that I have regarding the films and the ones that I would say the most infamous is perhaps Ed Harris and James oh, yeah. Cameron's fracas on set. From the making of documentary, they seem to be quite cordial, although tellingly neither one are in the same shot together uh, behind the scenes or anything like that. But it's reported that Ed Harris actually punched James Cameron on the set of the film and that for some time after this, he downright refused to speak about the abyss. He referred to it as like a Vietnam veteran recalling the war. Yeah, it's almost like he dealt with a certain degree of post-traumatic stress from his experience on the abyss. Yeah, I don't think he's publicly talked about the abyss after that documentary was filmed. I mean, this is what I want to get into as well with the making of documentary that apparently has been filmed for this unreleased version Mm. that they've remastered. Because there was a rumor out there that I think it was Ed Harris himself has said that he had recorded behind the scenes interview footage for the abyss. And he mentioned it offhand in an interview and nothing's come of that ever since. And that must have been the last time I read that. That was about six years ago. Mm. So we'll see. Perhaps he's come around to the idea of tackling his experience on the abyss. I'm wondering whether he's only agreed to talk about the abyss if some crew members from the abyss were maybe involved in the production of the documentary. So it's almost like I can talk to you about this because you went through the same thing. Because it just seems, from every point of view, there's very little to compare it to any of the film sheet. Well, it's because it was breaking so much new ground in terms of just the way in which the film was shot anyway, that 40% of it was underwater. We wanted live-action underwater footage. And just the stresses that that put the cast and crew under. I mean, again, diving and swimming and staying in these environments, that's not their job. No. Their job really is to be the actors, to be the set designers. And mm. I mean, I know that they had their own unit for shooting under underwater as well. But a lot of these people had to learn as they went. And they were hired because they were the best at what they do, whether it be lighting, shooting, director of photography, that kind of thing. And then they had to learn to dive. So <laughs> it's like you've got so much more that you have to think about with this film than you would on a traditional film set. And it seems as if there were quite a few life-threatening situations. I mean, there were things yeah. like the thunderstorms where they, they would need to get out of the pool. There's a lot of issues involving pressurization and decompression. Yeah, I've read a few about regulators as well, yeah. the oxygen masks being broken or when somebody's struggling, it being putting the mouth upside down and them taking yeah. in a lot of water. Ed Harris speaks about that as well. Yeah, because they'd be down there for hours at a time. Yeah. James Cameron, I remember it said that he was down there at one point for like 12 hours a day. Yeah. And he had to decompress, was it, for like... For like 50 minutes. 50 minutes, yeah. yeah. Wow. That is absolutely mental. I read on, well, this is an IMDb trivia thing, but I actually read that he nearly died on this film as well. Yeah. As I'm sure every single cast and crew member has their own I nearly died <laughs> yeah, on the abyss yeah, story. Yeah. You know? It's a long list of incidents, I imagine, in this film. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was an assistant director didn't inform him that his oxygen wasn't full mm. and that it hadn't been refilled. And so when 
James Cameron got down there, he realised he was out of oxygen, <laughs> had to drop everything and try and get back up to the surface. But somebody grabbed hold of him and put a faulty regulator in his mouth that didn't work. And the more that he kicked to try and get free, the more the diver hugged him to stop him from going. He said he nearly he nearly died. He only got out of that by punching the diver in the face. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like the diver and the AD were both fired on the spot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> As you can imagine. Even just looking at brief glimpses of the production, you can tell that it was very tense. And lots of people break it, like Ed Harris breaking down on the way home one day. That seemed to be the, the toughest part is the liquid breathing sequences when he's doing the deep dive. Because even though this special breathing emulsion existed, for some reason they didn't want to use it in real life. <laughs> So can't imagine why. Yeah. So instead, they <laughs> did the lowest tech thing you could possibly imagine was <laughs> fill the helmet with pink liquid and tell Ed Harris to hold his breath. That seems like nightmarish. You're underwater in a helmet with water. I mean, I don't even know how, how they get him to breathe. Yeah. Because if you watch the film, any shot involving Ed Harris in that helmet, it's a very short shot. Even when yeah. he's like not in water, it's very short. I don't even know how you do it, because I, if you take the helmet off, then the pink water goes everywhere. I don't get the logistics of how they did that. <laughs> There's got to be some sort of tube in there that he can go to when it's needed because there's no way that they could empty that helmet out quick enough for him to get air and then refill it again. No. God, that's my worst nightmare. <laughs> it, it sounds horrible. <laughs> yeah. It sounds truly, truly horrendous. And I don't think anybody that signed onto this film understood what they were signing on for. Because this had never been done before. I think James Cameron says as well that, you know, he had a feeling that everybody hated him because they'd sold him on this amazing vision and now actually achieving it was going to be the hardest thing that they had all ever done. Yeah. He knew that he was going to have to put them through hell for it. There's a famous stories of when everyone visited the set, he would greet them with saying, welcome to my nightmare. <laughs> but I think the only reason people continued is because James Cameron was equally, if not more so, putting himself through this. And you could tell that he was 200% dedicated to getting this thing made and all that comes with that. And I think that's the only reason why people stayed. I mean, I want to speak about James Cameron as well as a director. And talking about these type of films, I think the type of filmmaking background that he comes from and the type of filmmaker that he's got a reputation for, the industry is starting to leave that behind. I mean, I'm talking about like the temperament that a director brings to the set and also how they achieve their vision. And I'm talking about like some of my favorite directors, Stanley Kubrick, William Friedkin, James Cameron, they all achieved their goal with some questionable measures, you know, like they, by... Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> Quentin Tarantino as well. as well, another one. But I feel like that's starting to be left behind and looked down upon now because yeah. it's more about like trusting your actors to get what they can. But the thing that I think sets James Cameron apart from them is that he doesn't expect someone to do something that he wouldn't do himself. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's putting himself on the line in just as much of a way, if not more sometimes, than every single crew member that he has there. And it is hell, and it really suffers, and he's really strict about it in, in terms of getting what he wants. But he's out there with you. And in a way, I think that's where his, like, army background comes from. I know that he wasn't involved in the army whatsoever, but he comes from, like, an army family. And I think that's where the uh, the military thing comes into it, that kind of military discipline that he has. But he's also, he views his crew as, like, a family as well. 
So I, I don't know. I think that's the difference for James Cameron because I, I get icky sometimes. Even when I watch like The Shining now and I see Shelley Duvall, and mm. I think what an amazing performance. But I know that that performance kind of ruined her mentally to a point where she still hasn't recovered and she was tortured on set. And I love that film, but it still has that kind of ickiness to it. And I get why you can't do that anymore. And I think that's what sets James Cameron apart from all that those type of directors and why I think his reputation, he is a hard ass, but he's not willing to put people in danger as well or do something that he wouldn't. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I think JC Quinn on the documentary was talking about how James Cameron would, would be in the tank for almost 12 hours a day every day, whereas most of the cast members would be in there 10 hours max for three to four days a week. Yeah. So that's the comparison there. He would be viewing rushes underwater and things like previous days' rushes before. <laughs> I think whilst he was decompressing, like just weird stuff like that. And just having to overcome all these technical difficulties as well. Because um, 40% of the film is entirely underwater. It's a near three-hour film. So that's quite a large part of the runtime dedicated to purely underwater feats, of which pretty much every shot is a... Uh, has something very complex going on in it. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's strange to think, really. It's like over an hour of underwater photography, really, mm. in the final film, when you step back and look at that. And I'm trying to think as well. I can't think of many shots in the film other than the obvious um, special effects shots that have been you know, achieved with miniatures or that type of thing. But mm. I can't think of any shots where the underwater photography has been cheated. No. And that gives this film the edge, I think. Because it is a very tense film. I mean, I think that's... Like, speaking now as well about my opinion of the film, I actually think that this watch, for some reason, or that I can't understand why, I've always regarded this as a lesser James Cameron film, but for some reason, a lot of it works for me, like, works for me more than it ever had before this watch through. And it's all to do with the tension and the authenticity of it all, I think. Yeah. Is what sells it. Yeah. And having never seen it properly and knowing of that reputation of it being a lesser James Cameron film, when I watched the theatrical, which is quite zippier than the than the special edition, I was very pleasantly surprised at how well it works. And I would say it actually works quite a lot better than some of his other films and I'm including like True Lies and Titanic and obviously Avatar Mm. in that regard because I would say for me now, I would say it's probably in the top four. Yeah, I think I would agree. And as we're getting into the actual talk of the film, my only thing really with the film is that it's two films vying for the same space essentially, but one of them just has an edge over the other one yeah because yeah. it feels a lot more part of that world as well yeah it's the classic case of i think there being slightly too many ideas in the screenplay yeah. and james cameron not realizing that it doesn't quite gel together until it's too late it's yeah. almost like he realized when they got to the end that they didn't quite gel together but it explains the theatrical cut which i have probably very differing opinions on compared to most people Yeah, well, I mean, let's get into that, actually. Let's get into the two separate cuts of the film. So your real experience with the film first time around was the theatrical cut, whereas I grew up with the special edition and knowing no different, really. So I've always been acclimatised to that longer, slower version. And and I actually do prefer the film that way in many ways. But I also think that that final act comes to epitomise what doesn't quite work about the film as well. But the narrative doesn't quite work without it. 
but it being there makes it a little bit shakier in some way. It's 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 a very strange handoff that these two pieces have. But what did you think coming out that this having seen the theatrical version first? Yeah, because I, I basically decided to do that because I wanted to, as close as possible, replicate what it would have been like for audiences at the time watching yeah. the film. Because I never had that experience with Aliens. Because the only time I've ever seen the uh, theatrical cut of Aliens is when we did that IMAX marathon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was, a, it was a good night. Yeah, and it was quite noticeable. The cuts, you know, is zippier, but it lacks the heart, I'd say. Yeah. But I'd say this is a slightly different situation to Aliens. So I decided to watch the theatrical as it would have been presented when it was a brand new film coming out and then watch the special edition later and three weeks later. So I'd as close as possible replicate how it was originally released. And yeah, the theatrical cut pleasantly surprised me because I thought it was going to be a lot worse than it was. I mean, it held up pretty well, even without those other elements. It's a lot zippier at the start. I noticed in the special edition, there's a couple of character things in the beginning of the film that are missing. I wouldn't say to the film's detriment, though. They're just sort of almost like extra sprinklings of things. I imagine it's like he just cut them for time rather than the whole subplot, which he obviously decided to cut later on. And yeah, the, the main difference is the larger enveloping story mm-hmm. is missing there's a little bit of it as regards to a conflict but it's yeah. very very much in the background like it's just there ticking under you're mainly focused on the characters that are in that deep core rig i would say 98 percent of its time is dedicated to those characters and those characters alone that's the thing as well like I, i've never seen really the theatrical cut all the way through uh, at least i don't think i have anyway but I skipped through it yesterday, in fact, just to see how everything fit into place. And how does it actually play without the references to this? What's happening at the rig is the heart of the story. But beyond the rig, there's so much like grander things happening. That, As we mentioned, the thousand foot tidal wave as well, that these alien beings are threatening the world with as a show of power to say, you know, stop dicking around, guys. You know, maybe step off the pedal in terms of war and that kind of thing. How does it play without those tensions being rooted through the film? Yeah, I would say that the deep core segments of the film, which is obviously the majority of the film, I would say that's actually a bit stronger. Yeah. Because it's more concentrated. Your attention is not directed to outside elements so much. It's a bit more of an intense survival thriller. And you're yeah. constantly like, you know, apart from the odd scene where you're up on the Explorer, you're mm-hmm. just down there with the people constantly the entire time and it has a certain intensity about it which i think the special edition lacks and yeah the aliens the the ntis they are present but they are definitely more peripheral and they're sort of almost there just to save the day at the end so i'd say that their context is the most changed but i think the fact that they could present the film in that way and get rid Mm -hmm. of this whole subplot highlights that issue because you can pull it out of the film and it still holds up relatively well. That's the issue with the film for me. I don't think you can really introduce this wild science fiction element of these alien beings living underwater without elaborating further on who they are, what they are, and what they want. Mm. And I understand that the theatrical version doesn't really do that, and it's almost to a detriment of those characters. But also the special edition 
it kind of fits it all in such a small part of the film as well anyway it kind of relegates it all to final act it's almost like an epilogue in which it plays out with um, Virgil's character meeting these aliens and it's all just kind of laid out to him what they want who they are and I actually feel like this film is one rewrite away from being at its perfect definitely level and the best thing that they could have done really is figured out a way to make this film without that science fiction element because I, yeah. I'm, not so, I'm not so sure it needed it and I know that a lot of people talk about the abyss in terms of the way it pioneered some certain special effects elements and it really did and it, some of the special effects in this film they still hold up today for what they did but i think that the stronger story is one that takes that out of the film i don't think you need the ntis there to make this film work because those characters and this this environment and how james cameron achieves this submarine survival thriller is so much different than what we've ever seen in other underwater films that that would have still made the difference anyway yeah for me personally because all of that works all of that is five out of five for me. Yeah. I think they would have needed to incorporate the aliens more into the deep core plot as well. Yeah. I think because with that whole tidal wave, it doesn't seem to affect the explorer up above. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. There seems to be some sort of link between the storm, but it just feels like there's a natural storm there. It doesn't feel like something that the aliens have created there's like a disconnect between the tidal wave and the storm and i feel they should have joined those two together better because if the aliens have been responsible for the storm and the crane going over and their whole plight is because of the aliens i mean it's partly because of the aliens because obviously they're investigating the submarine but i think it needs to be integrated just a little bit more again it's one rewrite away from being perfect yeah i think as well like it's either you you take it out or you integrate them more and if they integrate it more i think by setting up the world from the office not just being one in which we're teetering on the edge of war but also strange things are happening things that people can't explain even Virgil and his crew on the rig itself like you know things are happening underwater that even they can't explain before the events of the film actually begin and they're just kind of brought into it into this grander story that's at play and I think yeah you, you needed more of that and as you mentioned with the storm as well i didn't notice that until watching it now where the storm suddenly disappears and you realize actually did these aliens or the ntis i should say were they controlling the weather in this regard because as you mentioned the the storm feels nobody is alarmed by the storm in the film itself Mm. it's just a natural storm there's a storm coming we've got to do this you know we've got this amount of time to get it done before the storm hits and there's nothing unnatural about what's happening there it's typical of that region as well. It's not like it's a, yeah. an unusual thing to happen. And it just feels like, and I'm not sure whether it's towards the end because the shoot had been so tough that maybe you'd lost a bit of perspective on the story. Yeah. This is a very unusual situation in regards to a theatrical cut of the film versus a director's cut because the special edition isn't really a director's cut in the traditional sense where it's that director's vision because unlike most films that are shortened i.e kingdom of heaven when we were talking about that yeah where the cuts have been studio mandated the theatrical version of the film was actually james cameron's idea and the studio themselves were actually concerned about him cutting that ending so it's almost the other way around and it's not till later that he regretted 
the decision. I think it was also something to do with them not being able to get the tidal wave effect right because uh, yeah. the original version was like some sort of plastic model wave that they had, which I can't even imagine what that would have looked like. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Like cling film. Yeah. Uh, it would have been some sort of dodgy Doctor Who effect or something like that. But Yeah, because all of the tidal wave footage as well, that was um, that was achieved after the film. I mean, not the actual live action footage, but like you mentioned, the special effects itself, that was yeah. all done after the film was released. Yeah. I will say though as well, like as you've mentioned already, that the special edition isn't really quite the director's cut. And I'm wondering if there is a director's cut of The Abyss at work here. And that's Maybe. what James Cameron's working towards because... I also think one more element that is suddenly changed in the third act where it's in a jarring sense is the music as well. Oh suddenly yeah, totally. Goes all synth. And I think it's a separate composer as well it that is. they brought it in is, to... uh, I've, I've noted it down actually. Robert Garrett. That's it. Yes. Although the majority of the film is um, Alan Silvestri, which I think is a, a very, very good Alan, Alan Silvestri score actually. I think it's a, a shame that he never actually did another James Cameron film because I'd actually rate him quite a lot higher than um, than James Horner. James, <laughs> I actually think that Avatar was actually tempted with a lot of the Abyss music. Yeah. Listening to it again. And I would not be surprised whatsoever to hear that Alan Silvestri, Al Silvestri will be composing the score for the Avatar sequels yeah. given that actually the Abyss sounds like a proto-Avatar score in many senses. Yeah, I think this seems like a symptom of early James Cameron because I think there was some sort of clashing of personalities or butting of heads when it came to the music because I think at that particular time, and obviously it's very famously reported with Aliens that the same thing happened, the music seemed to be a lesser thing for him at the time. So like obviously the the famous story of Aliens of basically having no time to do the score, there was yet another issue which I imagine, which is why he didn't return to uh, do any of the additional music for the special edition. Mm-hmm. And it's painfully obvious as well where the special edition music comes in because it's you've gone from this huge orchestra and choir to yeah. someone doing a similar kind of score on a Casio keyboard. <laughs> <It's> yeah. like, <laughs> it sounds honestly like they just brought Brad Fidel in to do the, uh, yeah, the, yeah. the, the final act. I really like Brad Fidel as well. But, but you know, it's like... The music has to work consistently yeah. and it's not consistent at all. But as you mentioned, it's like it's gone from being recorded in a giant studio with a huge choir and orchestra to being composed in a garage. Yeah. <laughs> you totally. know? Yeah. So, but I actually think that maybe this is where he thinks this is where we're going to work on for this next release. Yeah. Like maybe that's the things that they're going to improve. I'm really hoping that he's giving it the TLC because for all its flaws, I do think it's easily one of the best james cameron films obviously below aliens and the two terminators but Mm -hmm. i would say it's probably next it's probably the fourth best i would say that this film has climbed significantly for me in my uh like my james cameron ranking of films i think i even last time i'd seen it i'd put it below both avatar and titanic and i i think now as you mentioned it's probably firmly a number four slot for me now for some reason this watch through the things that worked for me previously worked for me so much more. And the things that didn't work, I was able to forgive in a way that I hadn't before as well because of the surrounding film around that. Yeah, And it is, it's always been that sci-fi element for me that doesn't quite gel with the rest of the film. But talking about what works in this film, I mean, there, there are set pieces in this film that are just nerve-wracking. One of them, straight from the office, that crane sequence of the crane falling. And it's just people 
looking out of a window, watching Cable fall. Yeah. And it is genuinely terrifying. It's a film full of moments like that, of just waiting, dread, just ugh, mounting dread. Even the, the submarine crash oh, at the horrible. beginning yeah. is awful, especially when you get the, the shot of the... Is it the captain when he realises that the ship's lost and they're all going to die? Oh, yeah. That's just horrendous. And I was like, I wrote in my notes, one of the first things I wrote in my notes is that James Cameron's not selling submarines for me. (laughs) (laughs) Just, I think the fact that James Cameron has gone on to be a a deep sea explorer following the making of this film just boggles my mind because in this single film has demonstrated how dangerous and terrifying the ocean (laughs) is. And any kind of under like deep sea exploration of how it's just as dangerous as going into space. It's just like unbelievable. I wonder if he'll direct Tom Cruise in his space film that they're going to film. Oh, probably. I mean, have you heard about that, by the way? I've heard little bits of it. Yeah, Doug Lyman's going to direct it and there's going to be a set piece in a film with Tom Cruise genuinely in space. Yeah. Elon Musk is apparently on board to orchestrate <laughs> the whole thing as well and make it happen. That is the least surprising thing I've heard all week. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> for con- considering what they're actually doing, they're sending an actor into space for a film. I'm not surprised. And it's, it's Tom, Tom Cruise. Cruise. It's yeah. Like, yeah, I'm not surprised that it's Tom Cruise. I'm surprised he's not done it beforehand. You know, I'm surprised <laughs> he didn't go in that homemade rocket. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah. Have you ever seen Ghosts of the Abyss? I haven't. I still haven't seen his two documentaries, Ghosts of the Abyss yeah. and Aliens of the Deep. I've not seen either of them. Yeah, I mean, I saw that in IMAX once. It's pretty special, actually. I'd say it's probably a better Titanic film than Titanic. Yeah, my dad said it was actually quite emotional it to is. watch. Because he had seen it and he was blown away. James Cameron can sure make a documentary. <laughs> He's very good at yeah. doing that. And the fact that it's got Bill Paxton in it as well, it's a done deal. Of so course. It's Bill Paxton with his mate James Cameron going deep sea, exploring <laughs> to the Titanic. I am going to watch this tonight. Speaking actually, you mentioned Bill Paxton. The Abyss actually features another one of uh, James Cameron's regulars as well in Michael Bean. Yeah. And I think this is probably his best performance. Yeah, yeah, this is their last major collaboration. Obviously he's in Terminator 2 special edition for like a scene. Yeah. But this is the last big one, yeah. I would say what did I call him? Oh, I've got two names for him. He's Lieutenant Asshole. Yeah. Or Lieutenant Glare. His uh, MO in this film is just to brood as much as possible. It is, but I actually think that it's one of his best roles because he's playing against type for Michael yeah, Bean. Totally. Like, because he's always playing a military character. Like, he gets cast as military type characters all the time, but he's always the good guy and he's always the guy that the audience is meant to latch onto. And in many ways as well. Like, I know Ripley's our way into aliens, but Michael Bean is also our way into the Marines as well. Yeah. He's that connecting point for the audience. And so to actually use him in this film in a way in which we're not able to really get inside his head because he's just losing it constantly. I actually think like he's been cast in a Bill Paxton role almost. Yeah. <laughs> like That Hicks character, even in the theatrical form, was very well received at the time. Yeah. So I imagine it's almost like James Cameron doing, like you're now playing the anti-version of that character. It, it, it really is. Yeah. And I don't know, it just works for me. I mean, a lot of it is, he doesn't really, he, he does talk, but a lot of it is not really speaking. It's all about looking and his, his eyes as well, his eyes moving when he's thinking things up. I like the disconnect as well with how crazy his eyes are to how calm his voice is. Yeah, Because yeah. sometimes his eyes are darting across a room as he's being confronted, but his voice is very like, 
let them go. And I, I think this is probably his finest role for me in film. And it makes me sad that we don't really get to see Michael Bean anymore. No, I don't know why either. It's just... I think it was unfortunately a abuse related not abuse oh, related, really? but like alcohol <laughs> abuse and drug abuse that kind of thing related yeah yeah it doesn't really have that many main roles like after this point no i remembered watching him in a tv film called asteroid Ooh. in like 2000 oh wow i think this is something where the earlier james cameron films have a an edge on the later ones is that and this film is included i think that this film is almost the pinnacle of that in a way is that i think the characterizations and the um overall performances are a lot stronger yeah in, in the earlier films than they are in the later films i feel like he gets mm-hmm. a bit too obsessed with the tech and pushing boundaries and sometimes the performance aspects uh very much performative yeah in a way yeah yeah it becomes um almost that hitchcockian referral to the actors as being cattle yeah it becomes more like that they just become mechanical don't they that's yeah. that's it they just become them i'd say following terminator 2 sort of true lies onwards the, the performances in the films aren't as good as they no, are in his earlier films because they're secondary and i was going to actually mention to be honest for all of the wizardry on display for all of the technical uh, leaps for us to marvel at in the abyss Where it works best as well is the characters and the writing for those characters. Like, the banter that they have, the way that they've been cast, and you really get a sense that these people are a family. Like, they really banter off each other really well. You feel like this is a space that they shared for a very long time. And that's both in the writing and the dialogue, and also in what the actors do as well with that dialogue. It has its moments where it goes full James Cameron corny, especially towards the end, but I think it's earned it by that point as well. Yeah, it's not as jarring. You're on board by that point. Exactly, yeah. Are you talking about all the sort of deep dive on the microphone and stuff like that? Yeah, but I think it works as well because I think you need something that's a little bit softer to offset just how horribly tense everything else is because you really do buy that Ed Harris is just being dropped down a two-mile deep (laughs) cliffside. So you need something that's just that little bit schmaltzy just to keep you not just losing it yourself. Yeah, the whole element of Ed Harris and... uh I'm going to get this right. Uh, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. I always get it wrong. I always go Mastrantiono or Mastrano or whatever. Yeah, I... Mastrantonio. <laughs> it's so fucking hard to say. Mastrantonio, yeah. James Cameron just calls that M.E. throughout the entire yeah. film. Uh, a lot of people call him Mary Elizabeth, don't they? Yeah, than... yeah. It's a cracking name, though. You just can't say it. Oh, yeah. But that whole plot element of the failed marriage... It's a little bit cliche, like, you know that they're going to get back together by the end of the film, but it does strangely work, I think, because of the performances that they're giving. Yeah. I mean, when you get towards, like, the drowning, there's two major drown, three major drownings if you count the rat. Yeah. But, um, yeah, once you get to the drowning scene as well, that's where it really pays off. And the revival scene, I mean, because that looks like it was a nightmare to shoot from the yeah. behind-the-scenes documentary. For all of the underwater issues that they had shooting, it actually seems that the scene in which they revive uh, Lindsay is actually one of the most tense moments during the entire filming. To be honest, the revival scene, I think, explains why she's not even... Well, she's not on the documentary, noticeably. In fact, I think she's probably more disconnected from the film than Ed Harris is at this point yeah. because of that that sequence i mean that is almost like the precursor to the um the famous um strangling scene in um inglorious bastards yeah it's, it's almost akin to that 
in terms of the abuse that she kind of, which is another nickname for the film, the abuse. <laughs> that just seems to sum up the film. The fact that it even, even on the on land sequences, it got that bad. Yeah. To the point where she was on a cold floor, exposed, being slapped around for hours on end. The film can runs out and she just gets up off set and says, we're not animals. And the rest of the scene, they had to just do all the reverse shots and she's not in shot at all. Yeah. And it was on a shot as well in which she was nailing it. Yeah. I think Ed Harris says everybody had the feeling that this was the one. We'd got the shot. We'd finally got there. And then one of the uh, AD whispers, we've run out of film. And it's just, I can't imagine what a gut punch that must have been. I think that may have been the point in which you checked out, definitely. <laughs> yeah, it's just a straw that broke the camel's back, I think. It's weird, actually. What happened to Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio? Because during the 90s, she was, I mean, she was a crush of mine growing up because of, yeah. like, this and Prince of Thieves as well. And and it's just kind of like she just faded away. I think, we don't like to think of it this way, but the 90s were a different time for film. And once an actor got, an actress got of a certain age, they kind of just fell from the leading lady spot. Yeah, I was thinking about this a couple of weeks ago, actually, when I watched the theatrical. And what I did, I looked at her filmography and there's a steady drop off after Prince of Thieves. It seemed like she was just in one flop too many after that point. She must have had a a dodgy agent and it seemed like she signed on to a few questionable projects which just didn't pan out and made no money. I think she'd done three of those, almost like, I'd say, Oscar bait dramas, but they're not up to it. And yeah. um, I think that just killed her career. And you can tell that she just does supporting roles after that. Mm-hmm. I mean, to be honest, it happens now. Yeah, uh, it does, Still, yeah. unfortunately. Female actors, female directors, anyone who's not white, if they have a yeah. couple of failures, that's it. It's a much harsher game for them. Yeah, and she had a very strong decade, basically from 83 to 93, her breakout role was Scarface. Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, and then I'd say after Prince of Thieves, pretty much dropped off a cliff. Yeah, that always feels like the last film that she was in during my childhood days. Yeah, and I imagine also the experience of making this film may have dissuaded her from making any other large-scale films of this type. I imagine no other films of this type would have been anywhere near as arduous, but I think once you've, I think a film like this changes you. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember which actor it is that says it, but he said that he had been on some rough sets after this, but every time he saw somebody complaining, he was like, this is nothing. I was in the abyss. Oh, it's the guy that plays <laughs> Catfish. It is. is. It called, I think, is it Leo Burmeister or something I, like that? Yes, that's it, because I looked him up on IMDb and just to see what he had done since. And he, he unfortunately died in like 2004 or something like that. Well, him, JC Quinn and uh, Captain Kid Brewer. Uh, and no yeah. longer with us, unfortunately. I mean, obviously, yeah. Captain Kid Brewer is, is a, another issue entirely. He died not very long after the film had released, and when they came to do the special edition, I think mm. even though he's only got three extra lines of dialogue in the special edition, they had to pull all those tracks off the original production tracks because obviously he couldn't come and do any ADR for being dead. So <laughs> um, the special edition dedicated to um, to his memory. I mean, outside of the sci-fi element and the deep-sea survival element not quite gelling together, I'd say that's one of the only other things that doesn't quite work for me because... There's the set piece about halfway through the movie with that crane that you were describing before. The crane is broken off of the Explorer in the storm because of the military action and them not disconnecting the umbilical cord soon enough. 
and this drags the deep core almost to the edge and a lot of the minor cast members end up getting uh, drowned. Yeah, it's like they're all stuck in the same room. Yeah. <laughs> and Ed Harris can't get to them and, he, and he's only saved because of his wedding ring. His wedding ring, yeah. I write in my notes, symbolism! <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it's a very weird looking wedding ring and it's like, hmm, yeah. that's going to be used for something at some point. <laughs> and it's like, oh yeah, it's for that. But I don't feel like enough is made of their... The death, right? Like, they're not acknowledged. And even at the end of the film, when they come out of the rig, you can't help but think, there's quite a few dead bodies in that that rig right now, in areas that they had to seal off. And just like, oh, it's kind of, it's a bit dreary. Yeah, I would say that I really love this cast of characters, and I love all of the characters on the rig. I do feel like they all bounce off each other really well, and it all works. But the way in which they get rid of the fodder characters, the way in which Mm. they are killed, they are barely referenced again ever since, only ever to really tell other people, oh yeah, we've got like six dead people, you know, six of us died or something like that, but nobody ever feels about it. There's never any real emotion about the fact that they've gone or any real, I would say, acknowledgement of that. You get this one moment with Ed Harris screaming at the door, which is great, Mm. but never does the toll of their death ever impact any of the other characters. I actually wrote that in my notes as my only other real quibble about that. Like James Cameron, it's his moment to really give an example of just how dangerous this is and that human lives are at risk and people can die here. But because he kind of shrugs it off immediately afterwards, I say it undercuts its meaning and purpose in the film. Yeah. I would agree that that's the only real part of the film where it doesn't really work. Because I love that whole set piece as well. That whole set piece is great and the rig being pulled as well. Like, I I love the levels to that set piece of the crane falling, hitting the ground, we get a moment to breathe and then it continues as the crane falls off the cliff and we get the opposite side of things as then the rig is being pulled towards a cliff edge. I love all of that. It's, It's clearly well thought out, but yeah, I don't think the... The character death is. No, I think there's a little moment in the special edition, I'm pretty sure it's not in the theatrical, where they get the little geek or the big geek and they manage to find some of the bodies in that yeah. sealed off section. That's the only other point where it's acknowledged. That makes the special edition a little bit better in that regard, but in, yeah. in the theatrical, it's done and dusted. I, I can imagine a, a situation where James Cameron would have gone, the reason it's not acknowledged is these characters just have to get on with it. Yeah, it's a moment-to-moment film. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, I would say after that point, the survival aspect of the film does suffer slightly because it doesn't seem to be as much urgency outside of the bomb but i think if they'd racked on a little bit more survival it would have made it mm-hmm. even, i mean it's tense enough as it is but i mean i think it would have been it could have been even more tense if they started running out of oxygen because that seemed to be something that they set up and then get rid of because oh there's some more oxygen tanks that we can hook up yeah, somewhere it, and i kind of felt that like they should have had that 12 hours of oxygen left it would have had a more of a ticking time bomb because they've got to defuse the bomb and they've only got 12 hours of oxygen left as well mm. i think it would have ramped up the tension even more yeah the oxygen thing never really comes into play they establish it but they never really dwell on it and I th- there's a scene in another film sunshine by danny boyle that i think does this element really well in that the characters on the spaceship are running out of air there's only a finite amount of air left And rather than it being like a ticking bomb type of thing, it's more so affecting... I mean, it is used for that purpose, but it never really comes to a point. But what they do with it instead is there's a scene in which 
two characters, they get a bit heated and go to fight, but then find themselves crippled on the floor because they don't have enough oxygen to maintain those energy levels. And I was like, that's a really good way to just show how this change in their status is affecting how they can do their job. And so things are getting so much more drawn out. I think if we would have seen like just a couple of moments of maybe like breathlessness and struggling to do what needs to be done maybe yeah. it would have just ranked that tension up even to that next level of just like not only have they got to do this impossible task but they're running out of air and unable to think and act in a way that allows them to do it well yeah i mean i think that's the thing this film is almost at the level of being a five out of five film it's just like oh there's a couple of those little things that just like they could yeah. have just made it i think it's a, a solid four out of five film and if it just gelled those oh. big elements together and ramped up a little bit more it would have been a, easily been a five out of five i absolutely agree my first note in here is it's on the cusp of being an all-timer yeah. it's just on the cusp it's just niggles because even these things that i'm mentioning as faults for the film i feel like again i'm far more forgiving of them now because what works in this film just works so fucking well yeah, you know? it does. That resuscitation sequence when Ed Harris is just going all out, it's just... I actually got quite emotional watching it this time. I really did. I think what he does really well is, and this is where him making the film in this way paid off majorly, is that it feels so immersive. Even in its kind of slightly grungy, unrestored state, it still feels... Mm-hmm very immersive i mean yeah all the character intensity is there but even just little bits like uh when they're in the um in the submarine and you get all those pov shots from jammer's uh, helmet you feel like you're there and i think this is where james cameron's quest for immersion starts as well like a lot of things start in this film because obviously avatar is another one of those things i mean i would say avatar is nowhere near up to the level of this in terms of what they achieve, because with this, it's much more real life. There's much more to relate to. Whereas, although I love the visual aspect of um, Avatar, even though it's wholesalely nicked from Roger Dean cover art, <laughs> which is another story entirely, but on a technical level, it's great. But I'm not immersed in the same way that I'm no. immersed into the abyss because I'm not on board with the characters in that film they're they're all cardboard cutouts and it's a very cliched story as well like it absolutely is and there's no getting away from it but i would say about avatar is that it was still one of i wouldn't say like the best cinematic experiences i had but it was still a very good cinematic experience sitting down and watching that film knowing how they had made it and all of the technical whiz and bang that came with it I really enjoyed watching that film on IMAX. It was quite an experience. Seeing it on home video, there are so many other films that do that kind of story well that don't need those technical whiz and bang, you know, or that technical dressing for it. And I think that's where his films are going to suffer. It's not going to be so much seeing them at the cinema. It's more so their legacy. And I think we've seen it with Avatar, that drop-off point. It's like, wow, this is great looking. And then a couple of years later, everybody's forgotten it. Yeah, I mean, this is where I'm hoping that when The Abyss is finally finished that they go for a um, a theatrical re-release and hopefully one in IMAX because I think it deserves that kind of treatment. Yeah. Because it's that kind of film. If they'd made the film now, he would have made it using IMAX. Mm-hmm. To be honest, I don't think he would have made a film like this now anyway. I think he's no. a little bit too 
comfortable. I mean, I imagine the experience of making a film like this would have maybe put him off making another film like this anyway, because <laughs> it's pretty bonkers. This underlying thing as well, I mean, this is another time to mention James Cameron's dirty dick. It seems to come up every now and again on this podcast. It, it does seem to come up on this podcast. We need to do t-shirts by do. James Cameron's like, Dirty Dick. It's like the third co-host. It is. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah. this is where James Cameron, this is where he's born the abyss because, yeah. I mean, all throughout the 90s, his Dirty Dick kept rearing his ugly head. It's ugly, syphilis <laughs> filled head. But this is the start because... During pre-production on this film, the relationship between James Cameron and Galen Hurd just started to collapse. They'd been married. Were they married during the production of Terminator? Yeah. They were certainly married during Aliens anyway. Yeah. I think she produced Alien Nation. And yeah. somewhere in between there and the pre-production on this film, their relationship just broke down completely to the point where they were separated Yeah, before the film started. And throughout the entire film, they were in the process of getting divorced. But I think to his credit, he still wanted her to produce the film because he knew that she would be able to get it done. You know, he obviously trusted her implicitly to do it, even though the relationship romantically had broken down. And um, his dirty dick rears its ugly head. I don't know how he even managed to do this. <laughs> Apparently during weekends, he started seeing Catherine Bigelow. But yeah. I don't know where he would have found the time to do that. <laughs> yeah. So, was there even a rumour that he had a thing with Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio as well oh, at some point? Probably. Like, there was a rumour that he had with Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. And then didn't he and Catherine Bigelow get married as well? Yeah, just and then after. He, just filming. after. And then he cheated on Catherine Bigelow with Linda, Linda Hamilton. Hamilton. And then he cheated on Linda Hamilton with the actress from Titanic who plays uh, uh, Rose's great-granddaughter. <laughs> you know, it's just unbelievable. I mean, fair play to him, though. That's the marriage that's lasted out. Yeah, for, yeah. For a few years there, he was yeah. he was like Ross from Friends, the divorce force. <laughs> <horse>, you know? <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> That dirty dick. He obviously <laughs> yeah, he's could, such a dirty dick. He got control of it in the end. I may, maybe he amputated it. I don't know. Or, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. I don't know. It just got worn away. Friction, <laughs> just pure friction. <laughs> yeah, this is the birth of the James Cameron we all know and love. <laughs> because I feel like the James Cameron before then is a completely different entity to what we get after because these huge productions that are like almost deemed to fail because people always talk about Terminator 2 being a hundred million dollar production and this was close to that this was a 70 million dollar yeah. production plus the money for the special edition probably an mm -hmm. 80 million dollar oh yeah, yeah production and we've not even started to talk about the CGI in this film as well. I think we've got to as well, but just before we do, there's a couple of things we've not spoken about. The CGI and also, like, the rat. We've not spoken about the rat scene, because that's become one of the uh, breaking point moments of that film for some people. Yeah. Just for anybody that hasn't seen the film, and I don't know why you would be listening to this podcast if you hadn't, there is a scene in which... <laughs> Go and fucking watch it! I <laughs> know, absolutely. Uh, there is a scene in which uh, one of the characters does force a rat into this uh, oxygen-rich liquid, and it has to breathe in this liquid in and out. It essentially drowns a rat, and they did it five times to five different rats. And the scene got cut over here in the UK. Yeah. And James Cameron says, 
He says, somewhere on the uh, census board, they said... It was the Royal Veterinarian Society. Oh, that was it. The Royal Veterinarian Society had said that the rat must have been in pain or suffered. He says, I don't know how they would know that. Like, (laughs) as if drowning is a pleasant experience for anyone, (laughs) you know? (laughs) It lived, who cares? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I still feel kind of uncomfortable watching that. That yeah. scene, to be honest, I don't think there's no way that you get away with that now. Yeah, and it's still looked down upon by the uh, so the ASPCA, which is the yeah. American version of the RSPCA. Yeah, and the rat died as well. You know, natural circumstances. Yeah, uh, nat- natural. <laughs> to be honest, I mean, it's horrific in of itself, but equally amazing that that actually exists. Yeah, I always thought when I was a kid, I remember thinking it was a special effect. Yeah, but. I remember my mind being blown when I actually found out that this shit actually existed. It's pretty much the sole reason for the movie existing. I mean, I imagine it's like the thing that inspired him to make the film as it is anyway. I remembered reading somewhere as well that this was the future of space travel at one point. People had theorised that this would be the future for for sleeping during long trips and to protect our bodies against space flight. But yeah, who knows? So yeah, let's move on to the special effects of CGI because yeah. this film is really quite revolutionary when it comes to its CGI effects. I think just all the special effects, to be honest. Well, well, yeah. In the theatrical, at least, I can only note one special effect, which I think is a bit dodgy, which is the... Yeah. Um, there's a couple of shots from the um, smaller subs with their little grabber arms that are done in stop motion that are a bit jerky. Yeah, I did make note of them as well, the stop motion in the film. That's the only moment that the special effects specifically don't work. And I'd say in the theatrical, because I think some of the wave effects in the special edition are still a little bit dodge. Yeah. This may be something that he's improving with the yeah. the newer version if it ever comes out. But I love, yeah, the drive for wet miniatures are great. The NTI effects that are all actually done in water, like they're submerged miniatures. Oh, right. So they actually did the NTIs underwater to achieve that effect. They did them in like black light tanks and they're all oh, like... Wow. And I think quite a few of the other miniatures, like the submarines all in um, water. So they blend much better. And yeah, that pseudopod sequence. Yeah, watching the making of, I was actually quite surprised that they refer, they refer to it as a pseudopod, don't they? The, uh, yeah. The CGI, like, tentacle thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what this is that I'm doing with my hand. Are you simulating the uh, the insulation <laughs> pipe that they had to replicate what it was? <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> I felt like I was stuck in some, like, Madonna Ray of Light video. Just Yeah. They basically had a pipe that's very similar to what you have in the back of your washing machine or your tumble dryer, and they yeah. were just sort of flailing this about in front of the actors. <laughs> that's where they were saying, oh, these actors are so amazing, that, you know, when you have them reacting to an industrial hose. <laughs> Oh, actually, as well, speaking about uh, James Cameron's dirty dick, I did think <laughs> I did think that one of the NTIs looked like a hooded penis. Yeah. The one that Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio sees while she's stood on the cliff side, the little one, <laughs> and it looks right at her, and I'm like, yeah, that's James Cameron, that, all over. <laughs> oh. It's a shame that those elements don't quite gel together because the stuff looks great. As you mentioned, the tentacle, the um, pseudopod, and the crafts themselves, very close encounters of the third kind. It has that feel to it. I'd say that's part of it for me, is that the NTI scenes feel like they're leaning far more into Spielbergian territory. Yeah, definitely. Than they do feel anything James Cameron. Yeah. And I feel like that's probably where the disconnect begins. Like, they need to be just brought into James Cameron's vision a little bit more, I think, than leaning into this 
wonder and awe of this Spielbergian universe. Yeah. The scene where Bud is taken into the spaceship is very close encounters slash oh, 2001 yeah. anyway. Like, I mean, that's where his ambitions lay for it anyway. So in that respect, it does succeed somewhat. But yeah, yeah it doesn't quite mesh with this grounded blue collar survival story that's going on next door. <laughs> no, absolutely. Talking about as well the uh, the setup for the big tidal wave sequence with the Vox Pops. When you see on the news them talking to different characters, you know, just normal extras on the street kind yeah. of thing. They are the some of the worst actors in the film. <laughs> yes. That whole bit just seems so disconnected from the rest of the film. Yeah. In a way, I can see why he just decided to cut it on the initial edit because it doesn't really work that well. I mean, it's no. easily the weakest part of the film. <laughs> but it's like, as mentioned, it's either you take it out entirely or it just needs that extra couple of steps just to yeah. bring it back in again. But yeah, I mean, anything more as well about The Abyss you want to go through? I mean, there's tons of stories, but I know with the pseudopod, it took about nine months to do. And oh, they, wow. that was one of the very first scenes they shot because they wanted to cover themselves if the CGI didn't work they would yeah. be able to replace it with something else, either something stop-motion-y or something else. But um, I think it ended up being that it took that long that they actually had no time to replace it anyway, so it had to work. Oh, right, so it was that or nothing by the end of yeah. it. Yeah, but um, it worked. It worked wonders, yeah. It laid the seeds as well for Terminator 2 with, uh, obviously, the T-1000. I mean, to be perfectly honest, that scene is much more important than the T-1000 when it comes to visual effects because that is, I would say, for computer animation and anything digital in films, mm -hmm. that is pretty much ground zero because a lot of the other effects that had been created in the 80s were very much limited and very 2D looking. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a hop, step and a jump in quality from where they'd been before. And the T-1000 is just a natural evolution of that pseudopod. It's not like oh, yeah. the T-1000 was completely new. It was like they built upon this pseudopod to create the T-1000. So I'd say for ILM effects work, there's a couple of things like there's that stained glass guy in um, Young Sherlock Holmes and things like that. Yeah, and there's also a, there's a short film as well made by a couple of special effects wizards, like a Silver Surfer movie that they made as a short. Oh, that right, was yeah. like the beginning for the T-1000 as well. And I think, as you mentioned, without those two pieces in, in particular, I don't think that the T-1000 would happen. It's As you mentioned, it's more of just a natural evolution of what the work done in both of those cases. Yeah, especially when it came to like modeling faces and things like that. That, that seemed yeah. to be the stuff that they refined and nailed down, which allowed them to do something like T-1000. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is where, yeah, this film is very much underappreciated because people hark on about Terminator 2, but in fact, all the tech was created for this film. and, and They just refined it a little bit yeah, for Terminator 2. Yeah. One thing as well that I just wanted to mention in regards to this film is we've already spoke about how well I do think the characters are drawn in this film, but James Cameron, he does get a reputation for writing women a certain way in film. And I, I think it's actually rather unearned. One thing that I've seen the women in this film described as is like men without dicks or women with dicks, mm. that type of thing. And they always reference um, Ripley, which I don't think makes sense, but no. specifically as well, Sarah Connor in Terminator 2, 
which again doesn't make sense as well because she's more of a maternal character. And I've never really understood that criticism. And I think like when we no. look at this film as well, and we look at Mary Elizabeth and Master Antonio as well, her character, I think like there are several examples throughout his, his entire filmography really that shout to the opposite. Yeah, totally. And I think there's this weird like even when people like are being critical of James Cameron's films from a even like a feminist point of view, I think his films are actually really quite feminist. Oh yeah. And um, strongly so. Yeah. And I like the idea that women can be cold and hard in some films and also warm and maternal and motherly in others. Like, they're not just defined by being one stock character. There are a whole host of them. And this film, you look at this film, you look at Terminator 1, you look at Aliens, like all of the women feel like their own individual characters. They don't feel like a stock. And I, I just wanted to make a mention that I think that that whole angle of, well, James Cameron doesn't write women, he just writes men without dicks or whatever it is that they say but i think that is entirely unearned yeah i'd go as far as to say that actually some of his female characters are, are better written than his male ones because even if you look at say something like titanic rose oh, yeah. is a much better written character than jack and something like billy zane who's basically just a yeah <laughs> uh, playing a, a caricature yeah it's a cartoon yeah. villain even in avatar like Nateri's easily the best character in the film so I don't really see where that's come from because I know a lot of people who look up to characters like Sarah Connor and Ripley yeah. from Aliens as being high watermarks in female characters in large-scale films. Absolutely. I think people are just looking at the surface level and not actually watching the films. A character like Sarah Connor in Terminator 2 is not operating on one level. You can't describe her as being a woman with a dick. No, exactly, yeah. There's so much more going on there. I mean, for all his faults as a writer, that's not one of them. Yeah, it was actually, well, back when I was in film school, that was actually what my uh, film studies tutor had posed an entire lecture around the idea of. And I remember sitting there just stewing in my anger. <laughs> just couldn't disagree more. And I will say as well, actually, Bud seems like a somewhat progressive character as well in many senses because you've got this kind of like the leader of the group he does fulfill like a macho kind of role but he's also really like empathetic in a way that these characters are not normally expected to be these blue collar leaders of a group you know he does feel like a fatherly figure but a caring one at that and an, an emotional one but in a good way kind of thing he cares about the emotional state of the people that work with him it's not just about doing the job and you know man up or that like when one of the guys starts to freak out in the submarine he doesn't say man up we've got a job to do or something like that it's all right man you, you stay here just catch your breath i'll be right back in a moment you just, you know it's like he's really yeah. caring i was like that feels progressive in a way as well you know just the way that they draw out that character i really appreciate that i think it made him like really endearing as well yeah that character works incredibly well i mean even though some of the secondary characters are maybe written a little bit broader i mean the hippie character comes to mind <laughs> yeah they're still quite endearing i think mainly because of yeah. the performers i think that, that make it work I think as regards to the Lindsay character, I think there's a couple of things maybe at the beginning that are a little bit clunky. I mean, yeah. I think they're like queen bitch of the universe springs Nicole, to mind. Yeah, exactly. Queen bitch of the universe is the one. Yeah. I don't think the film gives enough examples to justify being that kind of character that people see no, her she's, as. She's just a woman of certain power. 
she's one that's elevated in terms of the power structure at play. Yeah, I mean, I think it settles down very quickly, but there's like just a couple of moments at the start where it's like, oh no, yeah. it's going to be that kind of film. But then it kind of <laughs> just gets rid of it entirely. Like they, it's one of those things. Like I would say, if, if he did do a, another version of the film, that you could probably even just cut some of those references entirely. Yeah, if you're listening to this, James Cameron, do that. <laughs> <laughs> and where's my fucking Blu-ray? <laughs> Or four. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah let's <laughs> that first. <laughs> but yeah, I think what we should do is talk about the release of this film because I think yeah. this explains a lot as to the subsequent aftermath, i.e., the release on home media. And I think just the general attitudes of cast and crew towards the film and maybe why they're not viewing it so favorably. So as regards release. This was released in August 1989. Now, 1989, I think, is unprecedented a year for having films with similar themes all coming out at once. It's strange that this isn't mentioned more because people go on and on and on about there being two asteroid movies or two volcano movies or two animated ants Bugs movies. <laughs> That's the one I was going to say. But this has nothing on 1989. So there's not two, not three, not four, not five, but there are six deep sea sci-fi related <laughs> movies coming out within a 12-month period. I'll uh, read them out in order of their release. So you've got Deep Star 6 yeah. coming out in the January which is a Sean S. Cunningham film mm-hmm. of Friday the 13th fame. Of course, yeah. You've got Leviathan coming out in March, which is a George P. Cosmatus film. Yeah, which is, to be honest, Leviathan is a prime candidate for the podcast as well. Oh, absolutely. I would say that and Deep Star 6 would be... Uh, yeah. You've got The Evil Below coming out in July. I think that's on home video, though. Oh, right. I was going to say, I don't think I know that one. Yeah, I think it's one of the lower budget ones. <laughs> Filmed in a bathtub. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so before that, you've got Lords of the Deep released in April. Yeah, I can see the poster for that one, but I've never yeah. seen it. And then you've got The Rift, which was actually released in 1990, but pretty much all within a 12 month, 12 to yeah. 18 month time period. It was so it was a wet year. You wouldn't want to sit too close to the cinema screen. Yeah, but if you think that four of those films were released prior to the release of The Abyss, yeah, which was released quite late on in the summer you can totally understand what the numbers are going to be like, given the fact that all these films have come out before and flopped themselves Mm -hmm. and been poorly reviewed. I think Deep Star 6 actually has 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. (laughs) Maybe we should review that one. Yeah, so I don't think this created a particularly great atmosphere for the film coming out. No, and I suppose as well, one of the things I was actually going to mention about this film and its alien threat and I use the word threat very lightly. Yeah. Because although they threatened humanity with the destruction of all of mankind, they're not actually that threatening. They're more like these kind of like peaceful jellyfish beings. And one of the things I was actually going to mention about them is like for all the power that they have and for all the the warning that they place on us, you never get the feeling that they're going to uh, pay it off anyway because of how non-threatening they appear yeah and how innocent and ethereal they are and i was going to mention maybe they should have been a little bit more ambiguous in terms of the look of them in terms of 
whether or not there's an ominous nature to them. But actually, looking at that list of films being released at the time, I can see why James Cameron lent so hard into the more Spielbergian wonder element than going with the the monster below kind of thing that every other deep sea movie was doing. Yeah, because pretty much all these films are alien and thing ripoffs underwater. Yeah, And I was trying to look at as to why these films came out when they did. Because I can't imagine it would be entirely down to the Abyss's production. I would imagine some of them might be, maybe some of the later ones, but I yeah. don't think Deep Star 6 or Leviathan would have been greenlit because of the Abyss. And I actually managed to find a reason. Is it going to be like tied to some kind of real-life event to yes. do with an oil rig or something like that? Uh, no, no. It was down to, and it's actually connected to James Cameron anyway. Oh, right. The Titanic was discovered in September 1985. Wow. And because of its discovery, it captured the public's imagination briefly around the subject of deep sea exploration. So if you're thinking this is late 1985, 1986, I imagine there's going to be loads of deep sea related scripts hitting the desks of all the studios. And obviously quite a lot of these got greenlit. And uh, I think this is why quite a few of these are deep sea related but also you've got that combination of the deep sea thing and aliens of course yeah so smashing those two together you get mm-hmm. a lot of these films all right so to be honest when you look at it in that frame of mind as well you can almost see why james cameron was motivated to move into the making of the abyss because i know after he did make aliens he was unsure about what film he was going to make next and it was actually gail and heard that pushed him in the direction of the abyss yeah. And given his relationship to the Titanic and how he's come to have made the definitive movie about the Titanic <laughs> that many would regard as, yeah. it's rather apt that his movie exploration of Underwater begins with a film that was brought on by the discovery of the Titanic. Yeah. And I think the strange thing is that you get a load of crossovers as well because um, I know that Ron Cobb, he was involved within the production of The Abyss and the design front as he was on uh, Aliens, but he was also one of the main production designers on Leviathan, which is why there's quite a few design similarities here and there between Mm -hmm. uh, The Abyss and Leviathan. I'd say Leviathan, looks-wise, is probably the closest to The Abyss in terms of look and tone. Yeah, it is, yeah, of the films that surround its release, absolutely. It probably had the second-highest budget as well, I think. (laughs) as well because i think all these other ones were extremely low budget and it's actually got a stan winston monster as well oh yeah he's another james cameron regular but yeah i think this goes a long way as to explaining the sudden influx yeah the sudden influx but then also because the abyss was the temple but because these other films had muddied the water yeah it would be like if Christopher Nolan made a film about going to the centre of the Earth and then six months prior to release we get three or four versions of The Core coming out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so it would be like that. And if you imagine that, the appetite for another centre of the mm-hmm. Earth film, no matter how good the Christopher Nolan or whatever big time good yeah. director, whatever that film would be doing, there would be much less interest in it because of all these other lesser films muddying the waters and doing the similar subject yeah to be honest you even get it when you have films i mean i'm going back to films where it's like two of the same type of film coming out the same year but we've had it where like a film's come out and been they've both been good versions of that but because one's come first it's kind of appeased the audience's appetite 
met it and there's no reason for them to go see the other one no matter how good it is we yeah. saw it with the release of this is the end and at world's end oh just yeah because of the similar titles <laughs> of those two films and the kind of end of the world nature of them as well but the similarities ended yeah, and began there exactly but this is the end still stole the thunder of at world's end both of them very good but one stole the thunder of the other just because it came out before it yeah but I would say the critical and financial failures of both Deep Star 6 and Leviathan particularly because I think they were the most high profile in circulation films yeah. released at the start of the year. I think the appetite for a deep sea film was pretty much non-existent by the time mm-hmm. The Abyss came out. So no matter how good The Abyss is, it was pretty much doomed to not do as well because of that. It's a shame. Such a shame. Yeah. I mean, this will probably be the perfect time to talk about the numbers now. Because <laughs> oh, we're yes. probably alluding yes. to the fact that it's maybe not done as well as some of the James Cameron films. Yeah, so if we actually move into the stats and facts, we'll go over the uh, the budget and the box office information now. So the budget of this film, as we've mentioned previously in the episode, it was $69.5 million or $70 million. But the opening for the film was $9 million. And it opened to the number two spot. Mm. <laughs> and just to go over as well, some of the weekend notables, some of the films that it was competing against. Number one that week was Parenthood, Ron Howard film, and that had $10 million that weekend. And then number three was Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, Dream Child, and that one was $8.5 million. So between The Abyss and Dream Child, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5... <laughs> You're looking at barely any difference. And other films that were also in the uh, top 10 were Lethal Weapon 2, Do the Right Thing, Batman, Lock Up, and Honey, I Shunk the Kids. So that's what The Abyss was competing against for its opening weekend, and it still came in at number two. It would have actually been a cushy release because I imagine Lethal Weapon 2 and Batman would be far down the list because they've been out for quite a while at that point. Yes, they had been. I remember it's, it's something like six or seven weeks or something like that, maybe yeah. longer, that like Batman was out for. Whereas, say, something like Licence to Kill, which we discussed many and many episodes ago, was very much damaged by the release of Lethal Weapon 2 and Batman. And Exactly, yeah. It was sheltered from those releases, but even mm-hmm. still managed to not do particularly well against yeah. a film like Parenthood. I know, yeah, that's the thing. It's just, it's Parenthood. Yeah, it's like... Avatar coming second to Cheaper by the Dozen or something like that. <laughs> yeah, like Mother's Day or so. And not the good Mother's Day either, yeah. it's uh, based in the woods with the hicks. I mean, I'm not comparing Avatar in terms of quality, but I mean, in terms of scale. It's a tentpole, isn't it? It's supposed yeah. to be pulling in everybody to this film. Yeah. And to be honest, Parenthood's fine as well. I've seen Parenthood before. Yeah. It's fine. It's got some funny moments in it. But yeah, it's, there's no way that The Abyss should be coming second to Parenthood. But there is some minor good news, I would say, at the end of this story, and that is that the overall North American box office, although it didn't match the budget of $69.5 million, it did more than make its opening weekend because it made $54 million overall, which is means that the word of mouth must have been really rather good on this film to continue to keep pulling in people to make that amount of money after underperforming so much on its opening weekend. So that's actually a good performance based on word of mouth, I would say. Yeah, yeah. And the overall box office in general for the worldwide box office, that is $89 million total. So we can see that it has considerably 
underperformed really as a movie incredibly even like just talking the aforementioned a license to kill that made considerably more money and that's considered a huge flop yeah at the time and it's made about 60 million more <laughs> than and the I abyss. imagine that the abyss had a higher budget than license to kill as well oh yeah license to kill is about 33 million budget yeah oh wow so there's a lot been bet on james cameron with this movie and it's not quite paid off but i also when i think about this film i often wonder would we get Terminator 2 if not for the uh, underperformance of The Abyss? Would James Cameron be returning to that series? Completely. Because it's almost like I like Terminator 2 quite a lot. I think I've always said that the Terminator, this is going to sound like the most pontious piece of shit I've ever said before, <laughs> but <laughs> The Terminator is the better film and Terminator 2 is the better movie. Yeah. And it's like everything that The Terminator does, Terminator 2 does on steroids. It's incredibly over the top, but it's also like the pinnacle of action movies. It is probably the perfect action movie, but it is a safer genre film for Definitely. James Cameron. Definitely. It's doing loads of like crazy advancements in terms of the special effects where, you know, as we mentioned in this, they are actually rooted with their beginnings in the abyss and before. But yeah, I do feel like in story terms, it definitely feels like a safer environment for James Cameron following the um, unsuccessful box office of The Abyss. Yeah, although I would say, given the the eventual budget of Terminator 2, that must have been an incredible act of faith by um, Carol yeah. Co to invest that much money in a director whose last film had underperformed majorly. Yes, and for the type of budget they were giving him for Terminator 2, which is over $100 million, I think it was yeah. like just over $100 million. It was the first filmmaker to be given that type of budget to make a film. I don't think... Even his previous films, even his successes like The Terminator and Aliens had made the type of money back that would lead you to believe that he could make a return on $100 million mm. as a budget. Even now, it seems like a no-brainer. You give James Cameron money, he's going to make you money. It's fine. That's what he does as a filmmaker. But I think back then, we're looking at it with that perspective. It is a gamble. Yeah. And boy, did it pay off. But yes, uh, do you want me to go over to the critical score to yeah, The Abyss? Yeah. Oh, okay, so I have some information here in regards to the critical reception of the film. And the Rotten Tomatoes score has The Abyss at 89%, a very healthy, fresh score. Yeah, And even the rating is a 7.19 average rating for that film. And the consensus is... The utterly gorgeous special effects frequently overshadow the fact that The Abyss is also a totally gripping, claustrophobic thriller, complete with an interesting crew of characters. Yeah. I wholeheartedly agree. And for my critic review of choice, I've chosen Kim Newman's review, also from Empire Magazine, as it always is. And he <laughs> says, Top-notch entertainment, though Cameron's sloppy end is a disappointment compared to his other less optimistic films. I kind of agree with that, that that's where the issue comes in. But actually, now that you've reframed this film against the type of movies that was coming out at the time, especially the glut of underwater exploration movies, I can't see how it would have been any better, even if the creatures that lay beneath the water were ominous in any way, shape or form, considering mm. that that's what every other film was doing. And also the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, that had it at 83%, so it's actually slightly below the critics, with a 3.96 out of 5 average rating, and the IMDb score is 7.6 out of 10. I mean, I would say it's, it's all roundly positive for this film. Mm -hmm. It's a notch short of saying it's great, firmly good, 
but mm-hmm. just that kind of like not sure of it being brilliant, I would say. And I think that's probably fair for the movie as well. I think it's brilliant in parts, but I think it's also just that step below. Yeah, like I said, it's a, a solid four out of five film. Absolutely, yeah. That's why I'd say maybe some of those average ratings are maybe a teeny weeny bit low, but yeah it's, yeah, it's pretty much around that sort of eight out of ten well, that's Marker. what I was going to say. So the, I think the average score for the critics with 7.19 average rating is on the low side. I think closer to 8 out of 10 is what you're looking at. But uh, yeah, so that is uh, The Abyss. Do you have any final thoughts, Andy, about The Abyss? I would say my final thoughts on it would be, I think that the cast and crew will probably be looking back at this film in a much more negative light because it was so underperforming. They went through all that. And it wasn't a home run. Yeah. It should have been a home run and it wasn't. No. Which you kind of have to think, was that all worth it? Could you imagine being part of that cast and crew? And whilst the making of that film is still ongoing, deep sea diver movies start getting released like Leviathan. (laughs) And then suddenly like, no, please stop. You're ruining it for us. You don't know what we've done for this job. (laughs) I killed a man. Yeah, because I know all the other films were very sort of unambitious in that regard. I know Leviathan was all filmed dry for wet, like they would do normally. There was none of this, you know, actual genuine underwater malarkey. And I just think that even though the special edition came out, the long-term lifespan of this film has been quite weak, I would say. It's not one of those films that gets talked about time and time again, unlike a lot of no. James Cameron's other films. Even True Lies is probably mm-hmm. talked about more than this film, even though True yeah. Lies is easily the lesser film. Yeah, It's just that film that's snugged in between Aliens and Terminator 2, and it's just always regarded as being, oh yeah, in the abyss. Yeah. That underwater one. It's kind of a shame that that's become its legacy, isn't it, really? Yeah. Considering all that it's done and all that it does so very, very right as well. Yeah. Like we say, firmly four out of five, but I would say it has large swathes of that film that's solid five out of five as well. Yeah. It's just that when you look at it as a whole, it falters in places that you can't help but ignore. But I, I like to say, this watch through to me has been enlightening because I'd always regarded it as a very lesser James Cameron film, one that I liked but didn't really love. And watching it this time with my palms sweaty, mm. I was genuinely taken in by it and it suddenly all worked for me. And I was able to forgive its flaws in a way that I hadn't previously. And I think that perhaps there's people out there that need to give this film a second shot and just clear your brain and watch it afresh again. And maybe that's what we need a fucking Blu-ray release yeah. for. Yeah, you know, totally. I think this film would benefit greatly from a um, theatrical re-release prior as well. Yeah. Um, very much like what they did with the restoration of Terminator 2. Absolutely. Because I think this is a film that would greatly benefit from being shown on a big screen, especially a, uh, a large format screen as well. I think I would love to see this on IMAX. Could you imagine? This already feels claustrophobic as it is. Seeing it on IMAX is going to put you underwater with them. Yeah. All it needs is somebody to be like spraying water in front of your face. Just yeah. a, a slight mist. Yeah, because the film is so immersive as is. And when you add the element of size and the, the sound and everything. Yeah. Do you want to sit in those 4DX chairs? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like we did when we watched... Hellboy. Hellboy. <laughs> fucking hell. Jesus Christ. The it was like what, watching a film while somebody fucking kicked your chair from behind. That's what it was like <laughs> yeah. all the way through. 
ever since that special edition release on Laserdisc and video, was it the late 90s when it was released on DVD yeah. or early 2000s? But the big problem with that DVD release, and if you go on Amazon now and look at the reviews for that special edition DVD, 9 out of 10 of reviews mention the aspect ratio. I was going to mention, it, it, because the copy that I saw it on, I thought the aspect ratio was off. Well, it's a widescreen film shown yeah. in a letterbox format. Yes, that's what I thought as well, yeah. It's like you've got the black bars at the side of the screen. Yeah. Yeah, because I thought there was something wrong when I was watching it. So as well as just having black bars above and on below and like bottom. you would have in a widescreen film, you have a very small postage stamp of an image in the middle of your screen <laughs> at quite low resolution considering it's DVD and then it's made even smaller. What a way to advertise this film. Want to make your 55-inch screen feel like it's 45 inches? Buy the Abyss <laughs> on Special Edition. <laughs> I just don't understand why they would release the DVD like that. It feels like there's been no effort put into the DVD release. It's just all the Laserdisc stuff transferred to that newer format and nothing's been done with it. A flattered dick release that's just flopped out onto the table. There you go. Yeah. Well, that's the thing as well. When I saw the release, I completely forgot that it had been released on Laserdisc first. And I thought, oh, wow. I remember when it first came out, it's like, oh, well, documentaries about the abyss that they made, especially for the DVD. Don't they yeah. fucking haven't. No. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the reason why I never picked up the abyss on dvd because i always knew that it was in that four by three widescreen presentation very much like a lot of home videos were Mm -hmm. back in the 90s when you know when you had on the video it said widescreen yeah so you could actually watch the film in widescreen but obviously back then most televisions were in a four by three aspect ratio Mm -hmm. and um we didn't switch to widescreen probably until the late i think it was the late 90s yeah it was, yeah. I remember our first widescreen TV. Yeah. It went back about 16 feet yeah. <laughs> behind the screen. <laughs> yeah. It was great. It took yeah. up about half the room. Yeah. None of this flat screen <laughs> stuff, kids. I know, yeah. <laughs> to be honest, the first flat screen that I got, people wouldn't regard as flat screen now. No. <laughs> it's... <laughs> But um, yeah, I never picked it up for that reason. And I was always thinking, oh, they'll release a better formatted version, even on DVD. I think, oh, they'll re-release it for its anniversary or... I held off re-watching it for so long because I was just like, oh, well, he's going to release it. It'll come out this year, maybe next year. I'm going to save myself. And I pushed it off and off and off for so long that if I hadn't watched it now, I get the feeling that I wouldn't have seen it again. (laughs) There's no reason why that film shouldn't be out now. There's no no valid reason it has been presented as to why it hasn't been out. I don't know if they're making plans. Like My guess would be that they're making plans to do some tinkering with the additional footage that was included, maybe if it's some extra special effects work or some extra music work or that kind of thing. But there's been plenty of time now to get that stuff done. Yeah, I'm even thinking, is it a new... Cut entirely. A modified special edition, yeah. like Yeah, um, maybe the final cut kind of situation. I genuinely don't know what happens with James Cameron anymore because he's so in in James Cameron world, in in his Lightstorm Entertainment playbox, that I don't know really where his head's at regarding his older films. And I think this film is especially because he must have taken it quite personally, I think, the failure of this film because it was so hard to make. And then when it came out, it just sort of limps out, comes out at number two to parenthood, given all that work. I think also as well, the other thing we forgot to mention regarding the release the fact that the main cast members were so traumatised slash pissed off by the making of the film, they did not come out to support 
the release of the film, they didn't do any interviews yeah. or come out on the red carpet or anything like that. There was nothing. So yeah. between the release of the film and the special edition, Ed Harris did not talk about the film at all and obviously hasn't done since. So you've got that to contend with. It's like, I mean, we get stories now of obviously Daniel Craig being reluctant James Bond, but he still mm-hmm. comes and does the interviews. It's like if he didn't bother doing any interviews for James Bond films. Yeah, but thank God that he does, because I love the curmudgeon Daniel Craig that always follows every single James Bond film. Yeah, it gets completely <laughs> misinterpreted every bloody time, because yeah. he don't understand dry senses of humour. No. But yeah. I imagine maybe the experience of going back to the abyss after all this time. I'm not. I'm, I don't know. The abyss and True Lies are those odd ones out anyway. Like yeah, like and those I'm, two did, I'm ready to released. watch True Lies again. I watched. We watched it oh, for yeah. like the fourth or fifth episode of this series with Best Forgotten Movies, and we went really that positive about it but as with any james cameron film I'm like i'm ready to rewatch that film now i'm ready mm. to rewatch it and see where it's at where i'm at with that film in my yeah. time of life now and i don't want to go back to the shitty dvd that i have of it no it's time for the release there's a lot of people that worked on these films that deserve their work to be out there in the best way possible yeah completely. and i feel like it's just being held up because of no reason no solid reason that we've been provided whatsoever and i think it's doing a disservice to a lot of people that were involved in those films Yeah, and I also think it would be good for James Cameron as well because I think because these Avatar films have been delayed for such a long time and in that time space, the reputation of Avatar has nosedived quite considerably. I mean, it's still looked on as a a visual marvel, but as a, you know, nuts and bolts characters and story, it's gone really quite far down. So I think an actual re-release of a film like The Abyss would actually be good for his reputation to go, hey, this is a film you might not have seen or heard of that he made Mm -hmm. earlier, and this is pretty damn good. It's a lot better than his last two films. Yeah, and (laughs) and to be honest, I don't know how he gets away with releasing like three different versions of Avatar in like the first year of release and not get this version of The Abyss out. Yeah. But like you say, that film was made in 1989, released in 1989. There's a yeah. whole new audience out there waiting to see this film. If only they'd get it out there on the market. Yeah. The only thing I can think of now that's actually been an added complication that's come about in recent years that may have held it back further would have been the fact that this is a Fox film. And I'm not sure where the ownership comes into yeah. play as regards to Disney's sway over that. I'm wondering now if it's going to be a Disney release when it comes to it. Yeah. I think it may be. And I think, to be honest, given that. The Avatar sequel is leaning very heavily into this whole deep-sea exploration of Pandora. I expect that if we're going to see The Abyss at any point, that's when we're going to see it finally released on the home video market to kind of... Tie in. Bolster the... Yeah, to tie in and bolster the box office of Avatar 2. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that must be what it is. And I think the reason why it has been delayed is because Avatar 2 has been delayed Yeah, as well. And I think when Avatar 2 actually settles down and you're on that release path, that we'll start mm-hmm. seeing rumblings of the Abyss Blu-ray. It's got to be. It's got to be. Cause... Yeah. You know what? Can you see us now, 40 years' time, old men, <laughs> sat on our chairs with our microphones going, yeah. why is he not releasing Abyss? <laughs> He's been dead James 10 Cameron. years, but why is it released? <laughs> He's been in the cryogenic freezer for 15 fucking years. <laughs> oh, no, I hope not. I hope we, yeah, it's like waiting for God, eh? Oh dear. <laughs> Waiting for the abyss. Which one are you, Vladimir or Estrogen? Oh, I don't know. Oh, I'm going to be lucky. 
yeah. yeah. But yeah, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully we'll see it soon. I can think of no better place to end that episode than with the image of us waiting for the abyss like waiting for Godot. Yeah. Okay, so I think that's really enough for us to speak about the abyss this weekend. Next week, we're actually going to be looking at something a little bit more fun, you know, a little bit more happier. A film in which we see, you know, Bill and Ted go to hell and meet the devil yeah it's uh, this is a film that actually terrified me a little bit when I was a kid and I can't wait to oh, talk about it traumatised me yeah this has got some scenes in it yep but until then it's bye from me and bye from me and James Cameron's dirty dick dirty dick can smell it from here mmm smells of sea salt sea salt <laughs> ye olde oh, crusty yeah. penis <laughs> please come back next week <laughs> Thank you for listening. <laughs>